A little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep, or taste not the Pierian spring. Their shallow draughts intoxicate the brain, and drinking largely sobers us again. When a book comes out, the publisher or the author will often promote it by describing it as a list of tropes, identities, and references. Here is my new novel, A Grown of Stone and Bone. It has enemies to lovers, a chaotic bisexual, by POC, representation, elemental magic, and tons of Buffy references. It's akin to any product listing. Here are the specifications, the dimensions, and the features. We understand why books are marketed like this. It's an effective way to sell products, and under capitalism, a book is a commercial product. But when the artist starts to think of the writing process that way, as a cobbling together of pre-existing parts, you usually end up with unsatisfying literature. That's because art is not merely a product. Art is more than the sum of its parts. In this episode of Write Good, we are talking about why you need to take a holistic approach to writing. We are joined by YouTuber Lola Sebastian. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, could you tell us a little bit about your channel before we move on? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We'll figure out the flow of conversation. So I cover mostly literature, but uh, all kinds of pieces of art. My channel is called Lola Sebastian. It's my name, stage name. One of my goals in starting the channel was attempting to bring a little bit of um, nuance and textuality to the video essay sphere, not that it doesn't have lots of that from lots of fantastic creators already, but I find that a lot of people in my generation are very attached to certain moralistic, very objective lenses when it comes to art criticism. And I wanted to kind of do my part to shake that up a bit. Right, right. What do you mean by an objective Um, approach? That's a great question. So we had talked about this a little earlier, but like I run a letterboxed account for example, and people will confront me because I'll give like a lesser Kurosawa film four stars and I'll give Jackass Forever four and a half stars. And they're like, well, why is that? And it's because you have to review art. You have to look at art on its own merits. For example, a lesser Kurosawa film (laughs) is a lesser Kurosawa film is still probably amazing, but it might not be as mind blowing as Seven Samurai versus Jackass Forever is probably the best that they could do (laughs) with the Jackass series. And I'm interested about talking about art on its own merits, approaching each piece individually and assessing it as such. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. I see so much of the conversation around art, around literature. It's almost like it's going over a checklist like, oh, it had this trope, it's bad, or it had this identity, so that's good. But did they portray the identity correctly? And, and here's how I define correctly. And it's a weirdly bureaucratic way of approaching art. 
And it's, I, I don't think it's a useful way to understand art. I don't think it's a useful way to experience it. And I don't think it's a useful way to help write it either. I think when you approach your writing that way, the work you create ends up being kind of bad if you manage to create anything at all, instead of just getting this paralysis almost. Yeah, absolutely. And I know here on Write Good, you talk a lot about artist product, and I do the same on my channel, which is very different from what I do in academia. I'm only an undergrad. I'm currently applying to grad school, but I'm ambitious, <laughs> I guess. Like I, I've spoken at a few conferences and I've gotten a few works published in, you know, not like high pollutant <laughs> publications, but just in like local university publications. So I work really hard and there's a lot of pressure to analyze art on its own merits and not analyzing art as, as products. And then I see people promoting their work online and they like to list like, oh, this has enemies to lovers in it. So you'll really enjoy it. And I, I'm more concerned, you know, like I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, why is it like a product description, you know, like these are all of the features that come with this book versus like, here's the genre of the book. Here's the personal significance that it holds right. to me. It's um, a little baffling. I think it has a lot to do with the TV tropesification of art on the internet. Right, right. TV tropes. I feel like there's sort of an SEO friendly aspect to it too. And just an increasing tendency of seeing art as product as IP, as its intellectual property, and not as art, as something more ephemeral. And maybe it sounds a little pretentious to, to talk about art in this way, but I'd rather... I, in, in, in olden times, people saw art as something that came from another realm or from the gods. And it's very disheartening for me to see it being talked about like a product, to, to just fall from such a lofty status. And and maybe I sound pretentious saying, no, I, I don't actually believe it's from God or anything. I'm not like <laughs> going to go full Salieri mode, but I do think there, there should be a little bit more respect and consideration given to art, especially that a writer should, should regard their work with a little bit more reverence maybe than just saying, here's the content product that I have produced. Here are the features. And and it's not just reviewed like that. It's not just done on social media. Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, she's she wrote Mexican Gothic, and she, I believe, reviews books for the Washington Post. She said that books are marketed to her that way, too. There are marketers and agents and press releases that promote books to her, suggesting that she review it, and they list the books that way, too. And she says... You're listing me these tropes and the representation, but I have no idea what the plot is or the style or the overall vibe. I have no idea what this book is about. You've listed features, but it still doesn't give me a sense of what the book is. I have no idea if I want to write it based on the description you've given me. Love her work, by the way. And I think she's a fantastic oh, example of a modern author who appears to write holistically. It's so fascinating. Right. What I do mostly in academics is modernism. And while I just I find it funny, I think there's probably a mix of anti-intellectualism and anti-elitism going on. And, and these are good and bad things. Mm -hmm. It's all got to be measured. I think that part yeah. of the problem is that in academia and just in criticism in general, a lot of terms are neutral academic terms. 
and then the internet takes hold of them and decides the thing good or thing bad. Right, like male gaze, I guess. Yes, like Laura Mulvey in talking about the male gaze. She did like you <laughs> reading her work, she's not like the male gaze is bad and here's how to fix it. She's talking about gaze in consideration. Yeah. I've seen that too with uh Oh, the thing that it, the the hot tr thing to talk about now is Final Girls. I see it discussed a lot in oh, Final Girl problematic, Final Girl problematic when the book Men, Women, and Chainsaws that coined the term Final Girls takes a much more nuanced approach to it. And in some ways, the Final Girl thing is actually rather feminist in, in many interpretations and that it's very complex and it's frustrating to see people flatten it to this one thing. And ah, Final Girl, that's a trope. That's bad. Melina Pendulum did this great video essay recently about not just Final Girls, but also rape revenge narratives and how simultaneously they can be anti-feminist, like stereotypically so, but they can also be really empowering for victims of sexual assault. A lot about what I talk about on my channel is the works of Vladimir Nabokov and especially Lolita, which is my favorite book ever. And I it's so crazy because as for as popular as that book is generally and online, people are like, well, if you're a feminist, how could you possibly like that book? And I mean, it goes even deeper because... On my channel, I often talk about consent and taboo and age gaps and things like that because it's it's personal to me. It's important. I'm a victim of uh, sexual assault and, and various other gendered violences that I don't care to go into detail on. Part of the problem I have doing mm -hmm. the work that I do is that there's this kind of underlying assumption that like if I'm covering Lolita and Call Me By Your Name, then I must be a, a creep who's trying to say like, oh, it's mm. actually okay because of the age of consent, blah, 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 which is not at all my intention. <laughs> and I feel like right. there is this, and you've talked about this a lot on this podcast, but I feel like there's this recent trend where, you know, you have to state up front, here's who I am and here are the things that I've gone through and that's why it's okay for me to write about this, which oh, it yeah. puts survivors in a very precarious situation because it's like, I don't really feel like I want to be publicizing yeah. all of the like gendered and sexual violence that has happened to me. Right, right. No one should be expected to do that. It's an incredibly personal choice and, and no one should feel like obligated to do that publicly. I also feel like identity is considered completely static on the internet um, in that I did a video essay coming out as bisexual, you know, and here we are years later and I'm kind of reevaluating that. I keep getting all of these questions about why I'm why I came out as bisexual and why I might now be using different terms. And I guess it's just for me it's very indicative of the kind of black and white mindset that goes hand in hand with writing using tropes where people are no longer complex and fluid and nebulous in identity. You know, people don't change, people don't grow. People are essentially flat and not dynamic, but they fill certain roles. They're the final girl, you know, and diversity in fiction similarly yeah. doesn't seem to be fluid either. Absolutely. So we've used this word before. We touched on it. Let's talk a little bit about the trouble with tropes. And we are going to talk about TV tropes. It is a website that catalogs media according to tropes. How do we define tropes? Storytelling elements, let's say the site refers to a whole lot of things as tropes that I think um, 
literature professors oh, would absolutely. use different words to describe. Oh, here's a theme. Here's a motif. Here's a character trait. No, it's all trope. It kind of flattens it all into the word trope, which makes it harder to differentiate between any of it or prioritize it in terms of what your focus needs to be and ends up making it kind of harder to understand and messier, I think. I think part of it is that when I like when I read the works of Pauline Kael, for example, the way that she uses the word trope or tropey, you know, she uses that word in a negative light. And like you said, academics Mm. are not going to call a theme or a motif a trope. It gets to the point where I see people shunning works that even have something that falls under the the trope category when really it's it's a motif (laughs) and it's it's silly because the people will be like i've seen this done before and i'm like yeah it's water it's one of like the most basic elemental things in existence (laughs) you know i just saw this water trope i'm like oh wow um better throw it half of literature i guess Right. Yeah. It just everything is a trope. Like happy endings are tropes. Sad oh, endings God. are tropes. I don't, those, those are like the two kinds of endings, really. There's not, if you, if you decide not to watch a movie with, or not to read a story with either of those tropes, that's, that's all there is. Or deadpan snarker is a trope. Like, oh yeah, there's a sarcastic quippy character in, in a work. That's what, are we supposed to just not watch a work with a sarcastic character in it? Yeah. That's, that's bizarre. It's a bizarre way of looking at art. Somebody needs to go inform Shakespeare, you know, to, to cut out Mercutio, for example, because he's a deadpan snarker. <laughs> and, well, the whole tragic gaze thing is one I, I struggle with because people mm. love to contribute. Like there'll be any work that is just about the hardships of existence as a queer person. It's not easy. Right. You know, I say this single-handedly like as a queer person, <laughs> especially in older works or or right. works that are that have historical settings. And then any work that is, you yeah. know, vaguely sad or tragic, people will say is burying the gays. And why can't the gays have any happy, cozy, fluffy works? But then I read these happy, fuzzy, fluffy works and they're just not necessarily very literary or or interesting, and I think it's because it's like if we stopped looking at things in terms of tropes and started looking at them in terms of genre, like if there's a happy piece of yeah. work, you know, that is generally interesting and fluffy and um, f- fuzzy and dare I say squeak core, but <laughs> the gay characters are having, they're just the butt of the joke and they're having the worst possible time. And everything that, that they have happened to them is like extremely tragic. Like that's one thing. That's completely different, though, from a work being about the serious hardships that queer people go through on a daily basis. And then people are like, oh, they're just burying their gays, especially if it's a gay author who does it. Right. Like if you're a gay author from the 80s and you're just writing a book that reflects the reality of your existence, you're going to bury a lot of gays, unfortunately, because that's how shit was back then and it sucks but that's it's dishonest not to and it's i think kind of cruel to take a work of art by someone who survived or even didn't survive that era and you go oh it's problematic too many very the gays it should be happier like well this is a person who's speaking their truth how can you condemn that gosh it just kills me too because i find that a lot of that fuzzy pride you know, if you don't love yourself kind of stuff is, um, it doesn't really resonate with my experience. And and it's getting to the point where I think it's kind of mm-hmm. taboo 
to say that you're not having a good time all the time if you are of a marginalized identity. And this doesn't just affect queer people. Like I have a lot of really close friends who are people of color who will write about how difficult their experiences are. And then other people will say, well, that's trauma porn. Oh, I hate that expression. Or they pull up TV tropes quite literally, and they'll start going through and saying, you're leaning into this stereotype and that stereotype when really they're just, but of course they don't say stereotype, they say trope. It's this trope and that trope when really they're just speaking about how difficult their experiences are. And it's a little baffling, I have to say. Yeah, it, it's baffling. It, it limits the expression of marginalized people. And it's a crummy way to look at a work of art. And, and especially in terms of barrier gaze, that trope. I'm thinking of some of the most compelling heterosexual romances. And we've got like Romeo and Juliet. Well, they die. Yep. <laughs> Titanic. Jack dies. Fucking Wuthering Heights, you know, Catherine dies and Heathcliff spends decades just going insane. These are great, great, great romances that where at least one of them dies. And they're great. People love them. But if if you wanted to do something equivalent same sex, would you be accused of, oh, that's barrier gaze. That's bad. It's like, but but that shit's interesting. You know, that's so much more exciting and compelling than people blandly holding hands. I completely agree. And it's so interesting. For example, I just, um, one of my profs, he's an expert in Othello. And he's really Mm. interested in looking at the intersections of identity in that play, especially in the character of Iago, who, you know, if he's not gay, what's his deal is, I think, the most crass way I can say it. But a lot of people have fought back on that interpretation because they're like, well, that that's problematic. If he's gay, then he's a problematic gay. And it's just kind of funny to me because I'm like, yeah, he's also one of Shakespeare's greatest villains. He's extremely entertaining and he's beloved. And I just see actors fighting each other constantly to play him. So I think we sacrifice interesting characters in order to have good representation. And I, I know that that's not, it's not a very internet friendly thing to say. And I've definitely gotten in hot water for saying things like it a lot on my channel and on social media. Yeah, a a great example is, oh man. So I did this video essay on Call Me By Your Name, which inherently a lot of people were upset Mm. about. I will say overall, the reaction to it was exceptionally positive. But I did have a lot of people say, Call Me By Your Name is problematic because it falls under the following tragic gay tropes, etc., because it ends up with Timothy Chalamet weeping at the end. And then there are a lot of people saying, well, conversely, you know, if you're looking for a similar story, Luca is really good. And I was just kind of like blown away by that because I was like, I guess technically these two stories contain a lot of the same tropes. They're both set in Italy in the summertime. They're both about a romance I guess not not Luca, but they're both about a very close kinship, friendship, something that blossoms between these two men. But I'm like, you know, I can actually not think of any works that could be more different, to be perfectly honest with you. But there was all of this comparing of and I wish I could just pull up TV tropes, to be honest, on my phone. But people were definitely really upset about the fact that Call Me By Your Name has all of these tragic elements and saying, inversely, Luca is very wholesome. Mm. And it's it's funny because I'm, I'm like, well, James Ivory, the screenwriter, is a gay man who has very 
openly, publicly talked about how it's a tribute to his dead partner and how it meant so oh. much for him to do this gay period piece that reflected their lives together and how it had always been Ismail Merchant's dream to have a movie like that be one of their big successes because they tried with Morris and Morris was absolutely groundbreaking. But mm. when it came out, people accused them of encouraging irresponsible behavior. And I quote during the AIDS <laughs> pandemic. And so, you know, it didn't see quite the amount of success they were expecting. And it was a great personal disappointment. And not just um, Merchant, but, um, you know, you know, he is openly gay. He's he's experienced a lot of homophobia from his general crowd. Like he's had to really fight in a lot of senses to be seen as a respectable auteur. And it's also not a Disney movie. You know, it's not the biggest right. media conglomerate corporation in the world that's putting it together. It's it's an indie film that, you know, I as to whether or not it was a surprise hit or an intentional hit, I can't say because I don't know who's pulling the strings. But I know that it's not the mm. kind of thing that tends to become a hit. So to have people say yeah. that it's not a legitimate piece of queer art because it's problematic, but Luca, which is the most focus tested, not openly gay at all <laughs> for 10 year olds and made by a company that is actively funding anti-gay legislation right that just blew my mind yeah that that is a thing too that there's sort of a, a tangent but there's this incredibly strict nitpicking of work by independent queer artists but really really crappy representation by mainstream companies is just like it, it's graded it's on such a curve insane. Oh, Catwoman called her roommate baby. This oh is great God. representation. Okay, her roommate immediately gets killed. How is that? Isn't, isn't that kind of a trope of women in refrigerator? Don't think about that. Oh my gosh, it's so true. And it, it's one of the things I keep coming up across on my channel. And it's not, this is what's frustrating too, is I, I want to talk about works. Um, I don't want to just say it's problematic moving on. I want to talk about the ways in which it is yeah. problematic. And if you watch my Call Me By Your Name video, I, I think I'm pretty clear that I find the age gap, like, I, I'm kind of uncomfortable with it. And I find it in poor taste. Not kind of. I'm not really comfortable with it. Um, and I don't, I don't think it was a great decision. I know that it's adapted from the novel, which I also read. But, you know, I might have adapted it differently. But at the same time, the fact that people are, are willing to throw it out um, outright, say that it's bad, like net bad, it's this whole bad and good binary, honestly, is part of it um, in yeah. favor of a Disney movie is like really very disheartening to me. And as a queer creator, I'm a little yeah. bit nervous about when I inevitably feel comfortable sharing my work because I think that it's going to get ripped apart. Yeah for a lot of the same reasons that a lot of works I cover on my channel are because the characters are yeah. that I write are pretty morally gray, <laughs> for example, and unreliable. Good. And the whole thing <laughs> is kind of messy. And I think the reaction to it is people going like, I don't know, it's kind of messy as if I'm not writing it that way on purpose to show the nuances of my own personal yeah. experiences. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's uh it it sucks just approaching art that way as a writer I think makes you more hesitant to really go for it as a reader it kind of turns you into a little bit of a weird puritan or something it turns us all into these it puts this angry censor in our heads 
that stops us from seeing art or making art the way it needs to be. And and I'm not going to say like, oh, always go whole hog, but but at at least during the writing process, you need to quiet that internal sensor. And- Harley, <laughs> stop attacking the chair. Stop it. Stop it, cat. Don't attack the chair. Be be good. Okay. She's so cute. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And ugh, it's just a terrible way of thinking about art. But let's think. try and examine why it got to be that way. I mean, my, my theory is just very straightforward in that TV Tropes is free and accessible and getting a, a BA in literature is not free and not very accessible. And there's a, a much higher barrier to entry in terms of serious uh, discussion of literature versus here is effectively a Wikipedia. No, I completely agree. I think the internet has been kind of disastrous, but it's not just the internet's fault. I think we also, we need to consider the fact that academia hadn't, still hasn't really responded well. No. If you want to increase a population's media literacy, and I know that maybe sounds like kind of an ominous way to say it, but I talk about media literacy, nuance, and narrativizing a lot in, in my work. And it's, it's frustrating because if you want to create higher rates of media literacy, you have to make more works that are media literate accessible. Why mm-hmm. would people pay $15 or whatever it is to download an article on JSTOR that might be just awful, basically written in a way that is like extremely confusing and when when they can just go to TV tropes oh, yeah. and it will give them this rush of satisfaction, I think a lot of it is this dopamine hit. Yeah, it makes you feel really smart. You go, ah, I recognize that trope. I feel good. I feel smart now. CinemaSins has it down to the ding. You know, it, to me, it's almost like Pavlovian at that point. It's so rewarding to oh, watch yeah. those like, and they, they don't hold up because we've kind of grown out of them, I think, just as a general audience, especially in my generation. But watching that early 2010s media criticism on YouTube is so, um, it's so rhythmic and entertaining. It's almost like baby sensory videos. And it just makes you feel good about yourself for mm-hmm. noticing like extremely obvious nitpicks and continuity errors. It's a cheap, easy high. You feel really smart. You feel so smart. I'm so much smarter than this movie because I found this stupid little nitpicky thing that in, in the long run doesn't matter. Well, how does Indiana Jones hold on to the outside of that submarine on the whole thing? Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's a fun movie. Enjoy it. I think part of it is that I was raised in theater. <laughs> so ever since I've, I was a little kid, my mom has been talking to me about the concept of suspension of disbelief, which is something that yep. I think I know that art tends to wax and wane when it comes to trends of sincerity and cynicism. And luckily, I think that we are yeah. leaning away from cynicism and into sincerity. But that also comes with its own yeah. handful of problems, because in eras of cynicism, we tend to, um, I think we tend to be so cynical to the point of, of questioning every element of a work that we lose focus and we start nitpicking. But in eras of wholesome, <laughs> straightforward, sincere art, and yeah. I, of course I use, I use wholesome with massive quotation marks. It becomes very conservative, and I also feel like there is this moral puritanism that it actually, in my maybe warped opinion, goes in the face of ethics. Yeah. 
I think a, a huge part of being an ethical person is being able to engage with ideas that are complex and problematic and not being swayed by them, but understanding who your opponent is and, and what they think and understanding how yeah. things got to be the way that they are. I, I think a lot about degenerate art. <laughs> and when I right. look at the lists of things that are considered degenerate art, it reminds me, historically, it reminds me of posts I see on Twitter of people saying, this work is problematic because it has barrier gaze. And obviously, mm. two very different political opinions. I'm not trying to equate Twitter leftists with Nazis at all. But what I am trying to say is that moral puritanism on any side of the political spectrum can be really detrimental to art. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's detrimental to art it, in terms of understanding it and also in terms of writing it. It, yeah. it kills the writing process. In this episode, I'm linking at the bottom to a video where a writer explains that she used to be way too into TV I tropes. Saw that. To the point where her process would be, while trying to plan a story, she would start by listing tropes and then throwing out the tropes that didn't go together. That was really baffling to me shocking not okay here are my characters let's do a character driven narrative just well this trope doesn't match that trope like what on earth what a strange you know, way to write it's, something it's it's it. shocking because <laughs> uh you know i i i try not to um when i approach art care too much i guess about the education i've received mm -hmm. as in i don't think that you have to god no you do not have to go to like fancy creative writing workshops or whatever um, not saying that I have. I'm just saying that all. if you want to be a serious writer, it's it's not necessary at all. And I actually agree with a case that you've made in a couple of your previous episodes about how a lot of work now, popular works, like when I read anthologies and collections and whatnot, seems to be very middling. As in, you, you're not really getting mm -hmm. the highs or the lows of people who don't have any training or people who have all the training in the world. I think this is because there's no such thing as not having training anymore because of the internet. I think that people are less willing to take risks because they can Google how to write good. And then what they're, you know, what they're going to get is the same kind of advice over and over, like cut out all of your adverbs and don't use the following tropes. And so I think right. that the weirdly, it's like the baseline hasn't gone up, but it hasn't gone down. It's kind of middled out where everything reads is like extremely competent and but also just kind of has this fear about it. Like no one is really excited to experiment anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's bleak. And um, then I've also got this feeling about TV tropes and that it doesn't really teach you right. It, it doesn't teach you to analyze, but no. it doesn't teach you to write. And it's almost like learning to cook by reading the list of ingredients on a package of Oreos. Yeah, that's a great, uh, <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. Like you've got, okay, there's high fructose corn syrup, there's wheat, but how, how much of, how much of what goes in there and how the fuck do you make it? What's the oven temperature? What order do the ingredients go in? Do I have to fold anything? Is this one of those recipes where you <laughs> fold stuff? It's just here is the list of ingredients listed by their most chemical component. 
and that's it. And you don't fucking learn how to cook that way. <laughs> it's funny because I just learned to cook. Like, I just learned to cook seriously. Like, I just seriously dedicated myself to it. I'm not trying to say I couldn't make a grilled cheese sandwich before or something like that. But one principle right. I keep seeing, like, all of all chefs ever say is it's not really about, like, there's good foods and bad foods. Like, some foods taste good or, like, I like this food or I don't like this food. It's more as it's, like, what flavor profile is this adding to the dish? Like, you might not feel great about drinking, I don't know, a whole glass of heavy cream. That would probably be kind of a gross experience, at least for me. But I'll totally have vodka sauce, you know, because it's – I and yeah. I think that that metaphor translates over into writing as well is people prescribe, don't use this trope. Or, like, this trope is inherently problematic. I think more so it should be, like – this trope needs to be used in the right context by the right people, and then it can be amazing. Mm. Like, because when we say, for example, well, no more rape revenge stories, I can't think of a genre that's more varied in terms of good and bad representation, et cetera. Like, there are some rape revenge movies that I've watched that have been transcendent, that have really made me feel they're so amazing that it's even hard to describe what's amazing about them. They resonate with you at an intuitive level. And then there are other rape revenge movies I've watched where it's just like exploitative. So you just have to find right. the right person to write the thing. Right. Right. And you don't want to end up dismissing something brilliant just because, oh, it uses the trope. There's the women in refrigerators trope. That's a movie or, or a story that starts off with a woman getting murdered so that the husband can go right. on a quest for revenge. Well, Mandy, <laughs> that Nick Cage movie, that's that's a woman in refrigerators thing, I guess, but it's a fucking brilliant movie and it spends a full hour developing Mandy's character and spending time with her and getting to know her. And that's really the whole reason why the movie works so well is that we really, really get to know this woman and that she's this very interesting woman. And the idea of dismissing a movie like that, just a oh, problematic trope, is just awful <laughs> to me. I've actually heard the same criticism about Irreversible. And it's like, it just doesn't feel like enough. Like the discussion just kind of starts and ends at problematic by virtue of having this trope. By virtue of woman hurts, movie bad. Yeah. I think when it comes to works that resonate with us on such a deep emotional level, that provokes such a, like a strong reaction in us, it's worth analyzing further than that because a movie like that can be extremely powerful or extremely traumatizing to someone and it's worth asking yeah why that is is it re-traumatizing because you've been through the trauma is it traumatizing because it brings you awareness of your position in the world as someone who who could become a victim of sexual violence does it remind you of something you'd forgotten about? Does it remind you of something that wasn't sexual, but was violent that happened to you? There are just, there are so many questions worth, and you know, not just on the individual level, there are so many questions worth asking on a broader systemic and societal level when it comes to works like that. And I guess I get a little bit tired when people just want to end the discussion at it's problematic and just not talk about it. Because yeah, yeah, it, it's a thought. Killer. You know, and, and I, I see a lot of people afraid to let themselves indulge, if you will, 
in watching mm. works of media that have quote unquote problematic tropes. So oh, we're going to play a very short game. I have pulled up the trope pages from three different major works of literature, and I am going to list a selection of tropes from the TV tropes entry of a certain work of literature. So I want you to try and identify the work and decide if the tropes, this trope list truly expresses the essence of the work. Great. So let's start with work number one. Here's a partial list of tropes. Author avatar. Big Brother Instinct, Butt Monkey, Elegant Classical Musician, Low Speed Chase, Ungrateful Bastard, Baleful Polymorph, World of Symbolism, Youngest Child Wins. So I actually ended up perusing TV tropes for a couple hours yesterday in order to oh, no. be here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it is definitely a void. Weirdly, though, I think I know what this one is. Um, it is isn't okay. it um gosh, I'm lo looking through this list thinking about this list um butt monkey isn't that a character that just gets shit on constantly yes ungrateful bastard baleful polymorph isn't that when a character is transformed into something unwittingly um yes. and youngest child wins yep um, is, I think, pretty self-explanatory. I want to guess The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. Yes. Wow, I cannot believe that. Because if you look at this list, <laughs> it... No, that's it. That's perfect. You don't need to read the story. You just read the list, and that's totally the essence Butt of the monkey. story, right? It absolutely no, gets I, the right I mean, vibe. Oh, good grief. And also, Youngest Child Wins is... It's, <laughs> I guess if you consider that winning... Yeah, I mean, at the end, the parents are just basically thinking, okay, she's marriageable. Basically, how can we exploit her her maturing Which, you body? Know, might not, I would say should not be considered a win, quote unquote. I wouldn't consider it a win. I mean, she's not a bug, but that's still It's this, it's the binaries, great. you know, the, the winning versus losing, bad versus good. You, you start to see all works in terms of black and white if you consider her the winner at the end of that one. Gosh, that's bleak. Yeah. Okay. So here's work number two. Here's the list. Alas, poor villain, ambiguous situation, annoying arrows, career revealing trait, curb stomp battle, eldritch abomination, first person peripheral narrator, food porn, manly tears, ho yay, who names their kid dude, lampshaded, badass crew, animal nemesis. Um, once again, if someone described this work in this way to me, I would probably lose my mind. And this could be incorrect, but based <laughs> on first-person peripheral narrator, animal nemesis, and badass crew, I would like to say Moby Dick. All right. I yes. cannot believe I'm getting these at all. Like I, it's, And it's such a shot in the dark, <laughs> too. It's not even like the clues are good. It's like playing a game of Jeopardy you were designed to lose. <laughs> it's so just career-revealing for like 
food porn, manly tears, ho yay. What is ho yay? Ugh. Ho yay, it, it's like something gay or homoerotic, basically. That See, that should have also been a giveaway. <laughs> okay, so here's the third one. Work number three. Blood-splattered innocence, fan disservice, heroic blue screen of death, jigsaw puzzle plot, mama bear, mind screw, psychopathic man-child, you are number six, title drop, rape as drama, even evil has standards, verbed title. I have no idea. I have no idea. My closest guess might be in the realms of the unreal. Okay. It's Beloved by Toni Morrison. Oh my god. No. Oh, come on. Don't. Don't. <laughs> it's so, when you just reading, this one was the one that hurt me the most, I think, reading it. Like, oh, rape as drama is such a dismissive way to talk about that novel. No, especially because so much of Toni Morrison's works, again, beyond the individual, are about the systemic abuse of young black girls. And women of color. And yeah. talking about her works as in it's like rape as drama. It's like, you know, rape is real. That this is a thing that like deeply yeah. affects not just lives, but communities. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to sound sanctimonious. I'm not trying to get on my high horse. But it, it definitely, it's like right. in the process of attempting to say thing bad, they get kind of dismissive about the thing as trauma. Yeah. Well, especially there, the the phrase fan disservice refers to a scene where I believe it's a scene where the the sort of ghostly entity beloved sleeps with a man in in this way that's very awful and coercive and frightening and just to just call that fan disservice is really gross to me. That's so disturbing, especially because fan disservice is the opposite of fan service, and it kind of betrays that a lot of the people who come up with these terms are not the kind of people you should be aligning yourself with <laughs> is what I'll say because you know yeah. fan service is the celebration of when they'll show like an upshot of someone's panties in an anime am I incorrect is isn't that what that means yeah so, pretty much pretty much just here's something sexy for the fans to enjoy basically so conversely because of course, like the fact that they would even make this comparison is insane to me. Toni Morrison is fan disservice. I don't know that <laughs> that seems um, pretty dismissive of a lot of people's very traumatic experiences, and also just good art. Yeah, and 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 it it just shows how far this falls short. This way of talking about art. I mean, imagine trying to seriously talk about a novel like Beloved in these terms. You you no, can't. absolutely you, you can't. My God! Oh my gosh, that's that's brutal. <laughs> so, so that is just a, a brief illustration of why you have to go beyond TV tropes when you're when you're talking about art. Ugh. So, that's enough about TV tropes. Let's move on to another bit of uh, pack rattery and and this features instinct, allusions versus Easter eggs. Now. Allusions are normal in a work of literature. Just about every work of literature Absolutely. uses an allusion to something. But in contemporary geek fiction and contemporary geek film, there's a real fondness for Easter eggs. These little things that are cute little shout outs to other properties for the audience. And they're kind of fun. You know, an Easter egg. Oh, I recognize that. That's C-3PO in the background of the scene. Oh, that's kind of fun. Nothing wrong with that. 
But what's the difference between any old reference and an allusion? Both involve talking about another thing in your thing. Allusions are a little more covert. They might not directly name the thing being referenced. Allusions recontextualize the thing they're referencing and give it new implications and new meaning. And an allusion also builds on the text it's used in, enhancing the meaning and themes if the reader picks up on it anyway. Like the many biblical allusions used throughout Moby Dick give this story a greater significance to tell you this isn't just about a fish, okay? This is about something much bigger. Gosh, I love that book. It's it's brilliant. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful novel. No. Easter eggs kind of don't do that. They're just it's just that little dopamine hit. Look, look, there there's R2D2. There he is. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. They're they're fun, you know. It's it's a fun little thing to put in, but there's this thing that happens I think with geeks. They have a hoarding instinct. They have this need to hoard stuff to hoard Easter eggs. And you know how like a hoarder, it's the psychological condition where you lose the ability to distinguish between an object that's valuable and an object that's worthless. And you'll start holding on to everything, whether it's an antique watch passed down from your grandfather <laughs> or it's an expired can of beans. And I think geeks have this hoarding Easter egg thing where instead of using allusions to gently build on their work, they just hoard Easter eggs because that's what you do. You buy as many Funko Pops as you can. That You show how smart you are because you can reference all of these things. Look, the number 42 is in here. Isn't that clever? Well, does this add to anything? I see you're referencing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Is this a way to talk about the absurdity or the sort of comic nihilism of that <laughs> book? No, it's just number 42. I've been thinking a lot about these little dopamine hits that... The internet, um, but also these big media corporations are obsessed with giving to their audiences. Part of that is because I'm a really big fan of the works of scholar Dana Boy, who I totally recommend everyone listening to this check out. I've read a few of her books. The one I think that would be great to start with would be, um, it's called It's Complicated, which is about how teens use social media. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of what her works get across really well is that part of part of media literacy and part of understanding internet culture is is understanding that a lot of it is based in repetition and addiction that these conglomerates mm. want to get you hooked on their product and so the reason i think a lot of geek movies not only have this hoarding instinct but are so intent on using easter eggs is cuz it's this little dopamine hit and it's not anything more complex than like, oh my god, I recognize that, which can be fun. But like you pointed out, it's not an illusion. I don't think that it tends to add depth to a lot of these products. I stopped watching, like, my my little brother and my dad have seen all of the Marvel movies. And they would ask me to go to the theater with them to watch these Marvel movies. <laughs> and at a certain point around like 2014, I think I just started saying, no, thank you. But now every time someone takes me to a Marvel movie, I can't even understand it, you know? And it, like, I can understand the very simple three-act structure, the way the plot, because it's never that complicated, <laughs> the way that the plot is, you know, right. delivered to the audience, it's very digestible. But sprinkled throughout, there are all of these references and allusions that to other movies that you are supposed to have seen. And I think if anything does in the superhero film, it's going to be that attitude. But Disney movies do the same thing too. 
Disney movies are constantly referencing the Disney brand. It's like you're not part of the club if you don't understand. And this is kind of baffling because I grew up watching Disney movies and reading comic books. I grew up with brothers also. And, you know, not to lean into gendered stereotypes, but we were all into all of the same things together. And these things are often marketed in in gendered terms and demographics. So it was kind of nice going to see some of these early superhero movies and being able to, I say early as in like er early Marvel cinematic superhero movies and being able to pick up on little references and allusions. The one that drives me crazy, I think, is they will introduce a character just to say that they have the copyright of that character. Yeah, it feels like a flex. Like a... I remember in the recent Space Jam, they have the nuns from the devils, from Ken Russell's The Devils in the background. In this one scene, they have the crazy, horny sex nuns. And on the one hand, it's kind of funny to see it in there. I'm sure whoever put that in there is having a good time. But on the other hand, it almost feels like being taunted because there's a cut of that movie. The cut that's available on streaming is like heavily limited. There are bits that have been censored. And the company's still keeping the devils, the complete cut in the vault, and they're not letting us have it. They're not giving us the full one with these extra little bits of material that were deemed too shocking for audiences. They're not letting us watch it. They're not releasing it. And it almost just feels like being taunted of like, look, look, we have this thing. We have this thing. You can't have it, though. We're not going to let you see it. Which hurts because it's such a fucking great movie and I would love to see the full uncensored cut with his little bits of footage added back in, but I can't. Geeks get so mad if you say you don't recognize something. It's so funny because it used to be, gosh, in my childhood, I, I was, I've always been really into Batman. I uh, right. was always a huge fan of Batman and all the assorted villains. That's kind of died for me, to be honest. I, I don't really... It's not to say like I don't really still enjoy reading Batman comics every once in a while, you know, revisiting some of my old favorites. I love everything Alan Moore has ever touched, for example. But if, you know, I it's to the point where they they've started putting in all of these like obscure villains into every superhero movie. And if I said, oh, I don't even recognize mm-hmm. who that is, you know, I Google it later and it's like a villain from like the 60s that was in five comics. And pe- But geeks will be like, you're a fake fan. You don't even know who Condiment Man is? How dare you? You know? Um, but it's like when they put Captain Boomerang in Suicide Squad. And people very rightly, I feel, were like, it's interesting how they would put like Deadshot and Harley Quinn and Captain Boomerang in the same movie. And then geeks were like, oh, so you're just a fake fan. You don't really like superheroes because you don't recognize <laughs> this like joke character australia's national hero captain boomerang yeah and it's it is this very possessive instinct it's very hostile but it's also um i think a lot of it is because geek culture gamer culture comic book culture a lot of this has kind of been taken over these are seen as the dominant hegemonic spaces of white men they don't want to say and there you know there's been work that's been done on this I recommend the alt-right play playbook series of YouTube videos. That's great. Mm-hmm. But he talks about how a lot of these geek spaces, well, they're not going to say this is a space that's, that's just for white men, like white straight guys. And that yeah. the culture that we share is gaming and comic books, but they will be like, especially actively hostile, whether they're conscious of it or not to anyone else who attempts to enter that space. And I think part of the problem with that is 
if you want to engage with a lot of popular culture, and that popular culture is completely, I mean, all popular culture, essentially, or at least a, a very wide margin of it, like extremely wide, is owned by straight white men. So the idea that right. if you don't know who Condiment Man is, you're not a real fan and you must be <laughs> discarded is so exhausting. And unfortunately, I don't see it that it's getting better. Yeah. It, it also kind of feels like sometimes we're using these Easter eggs or hoarding references as an excuse to sort of not try very hard right. on the new story itself. Like your excitement for this story is based on your nostalgia for these other media properties. It, I'm, there's this one scene from the labyrinth that I'm reminded of whenever I, whenever I watch like a geek movie or something, a, a nostalgic movie aimed at geeks. And it's the scene where uh, our heroine, finds herself in a reproduction of her room. It's just her regular childhood bedroom. And there's this weird little goblin lady covered in junk, just handing her her toys to her. Like, oh, here's, here's your friend, Betsy Bunny. Don't you like Betsy Bunny? I bet you sure do. Here, don't you like this? Don't you like this thing? And the whole purpose is to kind of keep her trapped there with her little old nostalgic toys so that she doesn't go out and get back on this quest that's much more important yeah. and engage with the world. It's just stay in this safe little world, little room and play with your little childhood toys. And at some point, the girl needs to free herself by recognizing this is all junk. There's more important stuff to life. I need to get out there. It's interesting because I think a lot of media criticism of the early 2000s, the early aughts was about legitimizing popular culture, right? And we and and then I think the yeah. early 2010s was about legitimizing nostalgia. And it's so interesting because right. these are fairly recent concepts of these works can be legitimate and, and dare I even say acceptable in academia, but just in the, right. in the broader world of media criticism. Poptimism is a new concept, relatively speaking, compared with things like postmodernism, modernism, structuralism, you know what I mean? But the internet, if it's like you're not down with popular culture and nostalgia, you're elitist when I think a lot of people are interested in, they're not really interested in needlessly tearing down your nostalgia. They're not trying to tell you that you're doing complete harm to yourself and rotting your brain for watching the occasional Disney movie. But I think that there are a lot of media critics emerging now who want to talk about maybe constantly drowning yourself in nostalgia is not the, it's not the greatest thing to do. Maybe hoarding Easter eggs erodes your media literacy a little bit. Or at very least, if you're a writer, you should care about things like illusions and motifs and symbols. And the fact that that's even controversial is, I mean, it is concerning. Um, and I see it bleed into works that, not not just works, but the reactions to them that you would consider to be popular media. Like there was this backlash I saw uh, on Twitter people were calling like I thought House of Gucci if anything was the death of subtext but I saw people on Twitter <laughs> talking about how it was horrifically elitist and I'm like it's Ridley Scott yes. like that's what's so shocking they're talking about how these you know these auteur filmmakers blah 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 and I'm like back up here it is let me just double check who that is right I, I admit I didn't see House of Gucci, but it it didn't look like a terribly it is it is Ridley Scott. movie to me. <laughs> it honestly looks like kind of a fun trashy movie, to be honest. 
And that's that's what I think that's what I think it is, and that's what it purported to be. But a lot of people walked away from it considering it very pretentious. And I was I was seeing that reaction on Twitter. Wow. And I was really just I was surprised huh. because I was, you know, people talking about Ridley Scott that he's this O2 or filmmaker. And it just made me think, is this is it because this movie isn't a franchise? Is it because it's not part of a franchise that it's like a fun trashy? Because you're talking about the guy who did The Martian, Alien, Blade Runner. The, these are good movies, but they're also definitely popcorn movies. They're popular movies. Thelma and Louise is a great movie, but it's also not like this like little indie darling. like Right. It's not that cerebral. It's very accessible. It's made to entertain large audiences. Yeah, it's extremely accessible. So people saying that this was pretentious and inaccessible was quite shocking. That's weird. Yeah. I mean, I, I admit I haven't seen the movie, so I can't really weigh on in on it. But if, if Ridley Scott is considered to be a pretentious, inaccessible auteur, I'm a little concerned. I'm interested, too, in the role that humor has to play in it. And obviously, all of these are mm. hypotheses. Part of it is, you know, I, I have to admit I'm, I'm young and I'm just piecing things together. I try to do my best, but I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still reading. <laughs> but I, I think part of it, too, is that I think humor became weirdly metatextual in the early 2010s. I'm seeing a lot of comments about the new Batman movie of people saying it's the first movie they've seen in a long time that doesn't use doesn't doesn't use a lot of jokes that sound Joss Whedon-y. And I don't know if you hmm. can attest to that because I haven't seen it. I I don't remember. I don't really remember Which jokes. Which is in I, itself an accomplishment. The movie left gave me this <laughs> profound feeling of fatigue. So I don't recall laughing at the time. It was very strange. I was just felt incredibly tired watching it the whole time. Went home and went to bed at like 9 p.m. on a Saturday. It's like it put me into a coma or something. I I profoundly draining experience it wasn't weed yeah, though the, give it that I, it's it's i think it indicates a shift away from weed and but of course if the movies are weed and the media criticism is also going to become weed and and it seems like yeah. works now are less inclined to stand on their own and of course part of that is because it's a it's a bigger gamble it's a bigger investment to ask audiences to go see an original story when people just get really excited to see the next installment of a franchise, including all of their favorite childhood characters. Right. Look, it's a, it's another Batman. And it's, look, it's a new Catwoman. It's new. There's, look at the Riddler. He's, he's a lot like the Zodiac Killer. Look at that. Okay. I just have to wonder if anyone else is, is tired of seeing the same old characters reimagined. Um, I feel... I would think so, but they keep making money, so... It, it, oh, gosh, you know, and it takes me back, like, two years ago, I was in the line at Subway, and a, and a guy started up a conversation with me where he was talking about how that new Teen Titans series is so good because it's dark and gritty, and who knew? Superheroes could be dark and gritty, <laughs> and it, it was a real, uh. like, I don't know, the Earth kind of caved in a little bit for me at that moment because I was like, Oh, there are yeah. really still people out there who who are like, can you believe superheroes are dark and gritty? When I'm like, no, I'm That's over amazing. it. Haven't we been doing dark and gritty superheroes since Tim Burton's Batman movies, arguably earlier? Yeah. I know we've definitely been doing dark and gritty superhero comics for a very long time. It's not new. Maybe, maybe it all comes down to 
it's like everyone is willing to pretend that things that aren't new are new. Red shirts and final girls. The idea that this conversation about these tropes just started when they've been going on for a long time. It's been going time. on at least 20 yeah. years. <laughs> it's odd. It's it's very odd. And I, I just, I can't get it, but I don't know. Some people seem to like it. I, maybe it's just the sense of comfort. Maybe it's the sense of predictability in a world that feels unpredictable. And to a certain extent, I understand that. But I, I, I would like something else. It's very, um, it's a very <laughs> SEO friendly world we're living in. It's, it's SEO friendly. It's digestible. It's product oriented. And the feedback loop that it creates between content and the sort of listicle industrial complex, right? You make work that's much more easily digestible. So it's easier to write listicles about it. And because this type of thing is easier to put into a listicle than, well, we better, we better write that stuff that way so that it's easier to hype it. It's easier to hype works that are written like this. The other hypothesis I have about how the internet has affected media criticism and just art in general is fan fiction. And I know I, yeah. I, this is, I have to tread carefully here because um, <laughs> I keep getting in trouble with, with fandom by simply pointing out things like, you know, fandom isn't the be all end all of how art happens and people interact with it. And it isn't all, it also isn't the be all end all of like queerness or, you know, the internet. Yeah, fandom's awfully thin skinned. It, it gets kind of nuts. You see people who write, who, who will investigate it. And even when they try to be like rather even handed, they just get like viciously just dogpiled. Like, was it Sarah Z who did yeah, a, a video? Yeah. Sarah Z, yeah, who did a video about like pros and antis and people went nuts on her. And my understanding is she tried to be fairly even handed. I really love her work, and I thought the video was uh, exceptionally fair. And it's one, it's a thing that I've come, you know, I've gotten into trouble with in, in my work too, is you just, there There seems to be a lot of people on the internet who think that fandom and queerness are, are one and the same, and if you <sighs> are um, quote-unquote picking on fan fiction, then you're picking on queer people, which, you know, as, as, a, as a queer person with a girlfriend, you know, a, yeah. a trans girlfriend. And then I, I would consider myself non-binary. <laughs> it's, I, you know, I'm in this constant learning to know myself and understand myself and what my gender and my sexuality is. So that could, you know, that could change. But people saying that I, that I must hate queer people, a part of it also yeah, it's ridiculous. is, I think my background, like I was straight up, like I said, I was raised in theater and my mom's friends are all like, they're all queer, you know, it's Portland theater. It's very hard to know people in that scene who are like cisgender and heterosexual. So I definitely grew up in a very diverse environment and talking to, for example, I house sit um, for three gay men. Or they're they're uh I mean when I say the when I say the term elder gays I mean that they are elderly gay men you know the youngest right. of them being being middle aged and knowing people like that closely and intimately um for my entire life made joining social media quite <laughs> strange and disorienting because you have people in their forties referring to themselves as elders. What I will say is. Being around a lot of queer people in real life for my entire life, 
I think if you approached them and you said, oh, I, so sorry. I know that you had a partner die of AIDS. So you moved from New York to Portland and you found a new life with two other elder gay men. And, you know, I just want to say that your queerness is not valid because you don't read fan fiction. It's like (laughs) two things can be true simultaneously that there are a lot of queer people in fandom who do the whole fan fiction thing Mm -hmm. and that that's not the be all end all of, of, of queer identity, that there are a lot of there are a lot of queer identities that exist outside of fandom. It's um, it's it's it's. I, I get very uncomfortable with the idea of tying queerness to fandom because fandom is inherently kind of a corporate thing. Yes, absolutely. And I really like the idea of tying your identity as a human being, your sexuality, your gender identity to corporate intellectual property. That's deeply disturbing. Giving a part of your soul over to a corporation like that. I did this whole, gosh, I did this whole video on how I, I, don't, I mean, just to put it in the in the most crass terms, see a lot of myself in the music of Sufjan Stevens, and therefore it's made it easier to figure out my queer identity. And it seemed like a lot of the reaction that I got to that video was people who didn't really seem to understand. Cats are so cute. Hey, calm down. Calm down, buddy. <laughs> so cute. Uh, didn't really seem to understand that you you can connect with art and an artist on an individual level, and there and you don't have to be a part of a fandom. Right. I'm not a part of a fandom for a singer songwriter, if that makes sense. Like it's not the same kind of structural fandom as something like S- Super Who Lock. You know what you mean? Like I'm saying this as a person who writes. I love it when people read and appreciate my work, but the idea of having a fandom that follows me makes me feel queasy. I really legitimately would not want that. This isn't to say that, um, (laughs) no, it's no. So, so true. This isn't to say that, you know, singer songwriters don't have fans, right? but the idea that fans and fandom are the same thing. So maybe some singer songwriters have fandoms, but the reaction tended to be very fandom me in a way that I found disheartening because I was really more talking about the fact that, like, you know, a, a lot of the experiences that he is writing about me are my experiences, and therefore, I I feel like I'm beginning to understand myself better. And people started correcting me uh, on on ways that I had attempted to translate those thoughts and feelings into terms the internet might be familiar with. Mm. And and it, I yeah. So I think about tropes a lot. Yeah, I have this constant thinking about Ready Player One mm. going on in my head and how, say what you want about um, that book, that movie, but I do think that it, it very much uh, reflects the world that we're currently living in, even though it was written earlier. It does. I'm, I'm not a fan of the movie, but it, it, it does reflect it in a horrifying way, I think. No, exactly. And I'm not a big fan myself. And but, you know, I think that's because the movie almost showed us the ugliness of the world that we live in and said, isn't this great? A lot of the work yeah. that I do academically is is on T.S. Eliot and The Wasteland, which is a whole can of worms. First of all, I will say that I think the way that people in, in, interpret a lot of classic art, and it tends to be in terms of this is what this author was trying to say. And therefore, I don't like Ugh. it, which I, I don't. There can be a dominant interpretation to a piece of art. 
I think the dominant interpretation of Lolita, for example, is shifting or has always been <laughs> Humbert is a bad person. He's the protagonist, yeah. but he's not the hero. He's the center, but he's not who you should root for. But at the same time, I see a lot of people take very strong positions on these early modernist writers who are writing about how something seems to be lost in terms of art is no longer considered from the gods. It's no longer considered divine. It's no longer considered heavenly. And, you know, I agree that it can sound a bit pretentious to wax poetic about, like, it's so sad that we don't treat things as individually affecting anymore, and we don't treat them as special and important. But I also see this digestibility of not just people writing with TV tropes, but just the way that social media takes pieces of art and cuts them down into snippets. On on the note of Sufjan Stevens, one of his songs became a TikTok trend uh, hmm. like last month, but it, in the worst way possible because it was his song Fourth of July, which is about like grieving um, the loss of his mother and they had a complicated relationship. And they turned it into this just girly things, the feminine urge to wear high-heeled boots. Ooh. But they took this snippet of the song and they turned it into that. And and it was this kind of weird dystopian moment for me. This isn't me saying like we, that art should be sacred, but it's just if I if I wrote a song about grieving over the complicated relationship I had with my mother that must now come to an end. And then I saw that people were using it as a TikTok trend to be like, yeah, I love to go ice skating in the winter or something like that. You know, I yeah. or um <laughs> the, the the memification of it was it just felt so grim because yeah, while I don't think that we should treat art and artists like they are divine, it's like people equivocate that with having any basic level of respect. Right. So someone can bear their soul, you know, and then people just turn around and same thing happened with Mitski and continues yeah. to happen with Mitski. She's singing about her uniquely Asian American experiences. Your best American girl is it did itself also get turned into a TikTok trend where there were these girls that were like, well, I'm not the moon. I'm not even a star. And I was, you know, and they were like blonde and, and very white. And it's like, well, actually, you are exactly who she's singing about not being like in that song. You don't get to just say that that song is about you. But there is this kind of um, when when artists and <laughs> art gets fandomized i think there tends to be this kind of digestible nature where everyone just starts saying this is about me and it's like no it's not about you like i feel comfortable saying oh i really relate to carrie and lowell because i'm from oregon and a lot of that album is about oregon etc 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 personal details that no one needs to know about it's almost like there's no such thing as having an individual connection with artists anymore I don't even want to get started on how parasocial it all gets to. Oh, yeah. I think that's Ugh, part anyway. of it is fandoms. Um, fandoms will see an artist use a trope or a creator talk about a trope mm -hmm. that they consider to be problematic. And then it's like they've been personally betrayed. Right. A weird sense of ownership. But let's let's uh, start Sorry to like winding it down. Go Sorry about that. It's just we've been my cats are starting to bug me because it's start approaching supper time. Oh, sweetheart. So <laughs> So let's start winding down a little bit and just 
way too many talk thoughts about... and I apologize. <laughs> I have like so many pages of notes. Let's just try and talk about how to get away from that, how to escape that weird mindset, that hoarding mindset, just how not to be like this, how <laughs> how to stop talking about media like this, how to step away from TV tropes and explainer videos and cinema sins and criticism that does this to your brain. Yeah, and feel um, free and to I chop think, out whatever doesn't quite fit. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> but um, I think one thing to do is move toward better criticism. James Wood, he writes, that's James Wood without the S, not James <laughs> Woods, the guy who was in Videodrome. He is a British literary critic. He writes for The New Yorker. His work has changed the way I approach writing and, and reading, and it's really, really remarkable. And he can take a book and just dissect it and examine it so carefully. He has such an extraordinary critical eye. And one of his literary reviews is going to do more for you than reading everything in TV tropes. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's so good to have favorite critics too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if I may stick up, I I think that, stick up for YouTube, I think that we're actually <laughs> entering a, a new and better era. Oh. In terms of YouTube media criticism, it's it's so funny because I see people saying that long form is dead and TikTok is what it's all about. But I also am seeing that a lot of my colleagues are are, are experiencing a renaissance uh, of sorts when it comes to long form content. Some really great creators come to mind. FD Signifier, I love his work. Dan Olson, Sarah Zed does amazing work. Maggie Mae Fish does amazing work. Melina Pendulum slash Princess Weeks, I'm obsessed with her stuff. Um, Yara Zaid, Foreign Man in a Foreign Land. There are so there are so many. Oh gosh, Cheyenne Lynn. There are so many. Like I could go on and on and on and on about all of these amazing creators right now who are active and creating long form stuff that completely you couldn't even put it in the same category as CinemaSins or Doug Walker. It's really refreshing to see art discussed in a way that's a lot more nuanced and complicated. Horror people are pretty good about that. I love the best. The best. <laughs> people. I think a thing to keep in mind is style and vibes over tropes and Easter eggs. Style and vibes are always the best. Gosh, I got a <laughs> comment. You, I, I should totally mention this. I just got a comment on uh, one of my videos recently. I do this series where I analyze adaptations of Lolita on my channel and, and I talk about what works and what doesn't because a lot of them especially are like from Lowe's perspective but then they'll make her the secret mastermind who was seducing uh. and manipulating and I'm like okay well yeah. let's see let's see what we can take from this and what we can leave behind I guess and I I get increasingly comments that are like why are you even reviewing books that you know you're not going to like why don't you just and you know he literally said like why don't you just go on TV tropes and find Ugh. something that you'll appreciate, something that you'll find interesting. And it misses the point entirely that dissecting these works for what's what's good and what isn't, <laughs> to put it in very simple terms, tells us how to move forward, Wait. what we should put in the next adaptation, if you're interested in writing one of these. And I also see, you know, a lot of works of literature get interpolated in very effective ways. Yeah, I, I'm glad things are changing. I'm glad we're getting more toward an era of sort of thoughtful video essays and not, here's 10 reasons why this movie's really dumb. <laughs> Ding, number one. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. Gosh. Ugh, so, so, well, um, 
before we go, where can our listeners find your work? YouTube. Uh, YouTube. YouTube at, <laughs> at Lola Sebastian. I'm trying to put out videos more frequently. My next one is going to be on the life, works, and legacy of Anthony Bourdain. And nice. the tentative title is Anthony Bourdain, A Love Story. It should be coming out within the next couple of weeks. Oh, good. I think I recorded a voice thing for that. You did. <laughs> yeah. So definitely listen to that when it comes out because you'll get to hear me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, even if I was a little bit all over the place. <laughs> Tangents are good. Anyway, that is all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. Kittysneezes.com in color. <laughs>